Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. We don't know our own motivations very well. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Tim Houlihan. Tim is intensely curious about why people do what they do. His understanding of human behavior and his applied experience help policymakers, marketers, human resource executives, and sales leaders make better decisions about their constituencies. Tim founded Behavior Alchemy, a strategy, training, and design consultancy to focus the behavioral lens on productivity, team effectiveness, retention, sales effectiveness, compliance, and the customer experience. Along with co-host Kurt Nelson, Tim runs the wildly successful Behavioral Grooves podcast and meetup. I really appreciated Tim's insight and spirit. We dig into the monetary versus non-monetary rewards, the power of music, biases, and motivation, as well as Tim's journey into the world of music and behavioral science. Thanks to Tim for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, Tim, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm happy to. And thanks for having me, Matt. This is really, uh, I've been looking forward to this and I'm really glad to be here. So about me, I've uh, had many years in the corporate world, started uh, working in the, uh, the behavioral sciences probably in 2002, 2003, and uh, started applying behavioral science to incentives, recognition. Uh, That led to some partnerships with Duke University, Quinnipiac, Monmouth University. I spent seven years working with uh, Carnegie Mellon and their decision sciences team, George Lowenstein primarily, and uh, on, on research projects around goal setting and uh, gender confidence, risk taking, things like that. And uh, so I've, I've had my hand in academia, but I've never been an academic. I love behavioral science. Uh, I just think that it's so important to better understand why we do what we do. And uh, on the side, I like to, you know, play an occasional gig when we don't have to worry about <laughs> getting sick from it. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, it's an honor to have you here because I'm a big fan of behavioral grooves and uh, to that end, I do have some speed round questions to warm us up. So my, my right. first one, uh, coffee or tea? Tea. All right. And is that always, is it always tea? Does coffee ever crawl up into the, nope. Never, never. Love the smell of it. I love preparing it for my wife. Totally great. Love, mm-hmm. love that smell, especially first thing in the morning. Super cool. Can't stand the taste of it. Never. So from a psychological perspective, you can get the same benefit from holding a warm cup of tea as you can a warm cup of coffee though, right? Is that right? I think John Barge would suggest that that is the case, yes. (laughs) Okay, excellent. Uh, Now I need you to tell me, uh, who would you rather co-write a song with? You get to collaborate with Jimmy Page or Bob Dylan, who would you pick? Dylan. All right. Yeah, just, I mean, he's the greatest lyricist of the 20th century, so... um, so yeah, no, no way would I, I mean, Jimmy Page, fantastic musician overall, but doesn't yeah. hold to Dylan when it comes to songwriting. So that's, that's what I was going for. If you wanted to go, were you going to go more kind of lyric delivery or more riff 
to to punch up the song. Well, not that I'm Jimmy Page, but I yeah. think I could do okay on a riff perspective. Uh, right to, on. Excellent. Oh, I don't. Boy, that's, that sounds incredibly yeah. It's not meant to be. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, now I'm going to have you rank these three British Invasion acts. Kinks, Rolling Stones, Beatles, from best to least. Oh, Wow. You know, they all held such important positions in what they did. Uh, but the British invasion wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the Beatles. And so I would, I'd start with the Beatles. And then number two, I think the Rolling Stones, in part because they're still around, because yeah. they're still playing, have got to hold the number two spot, which sadly leaves the, the kinks, you know, for all their contributions. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, last speed round question. Uh, what would be easier to give up for one week? Access to email or access to social media? Access to social media. Yeah, I think that that would be easier for me to give up. I, I could, I, I've done it uh, in many situations. Yeah. So, that, that wouldn't be that tough. All right. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, so why, can you walk me through where your interest in behavioral science came from? Yeah, I, it's, uh, for me, it was very organic in a job that I took uh, in the late 90s. A, a couple years into it, uh, it was a job promoting and designing incentives. Uh, mostly, you know, so these were extrinsic incentives. The company sold points to clients and with the points, uh, could be redeemed for merchandise and travel and things like that. And at one point, after a year or so of doing this job, maybe two years, I said, gosh, wouldn't it just make more sense to just give people money? I mean, because that's what they want. That's what the clients are asking for. And here we are selling points. Why not just give them dough? Let them, let them spend it on whatever they want. And my boss at the time just said, trust me, it's, it's really better. It's, this is really more effective. And I was like, oh man, that does not work for me. Like, trust me is not, <laughs> I'm just cynical enough to go, that wasn't working. So I come back to him and say, I'd like to learn more about this. Why is the case? And he said, well, you should talk to this, this old guy who has been kind of, he's sort of the, the archival uh, librarian of all this knowledge within the company. And his name is John Jack. And uh, I'd just like to shout out to him, who this John Jack, who became my mentor, and uh, and regrettably recently passed away. Uh, so I just I just want to mention his name as being such an incredible influence. So I go to meet with John, and he says, "Well, you know, it's it's really." easy to see if you just pay attention, if you just really observe the behaviors and you look at the results. And I said, "Well, it, looking at the results of one program compared to no program really isn't a." There's, there's nothing to look at. We don't, we don't have any scientific data. And he said, well, I, he said, I did this study with, with Firestone. He's like, oh, I'm like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting where he actually tested the points um, with half of the, the group randomly selected against uh, the other half of the group randomly selected with cash in equivalent amounts. And doggone it, for sure, he actually demonstrated that the points were more effective. But I said, that's great, but it's also kind of self-serving that my, you know, that our company did that. Uh, is there anything in, you know, the, a third party? And he said, well, there was this kind of interesting paper 
from uh, from a few researchers and he roots through his file cabinet and pulls out a, a paper that's been marked up and highlighted and questions and comments and he hands it to me and says here and it was the New York City cab driver study that was conducted by Colin Kammerer, Linda Babcock, George Lowenstein and Richard Thaler. Thaler went on to win the Nobel Prize. Lowenstein has been nominated. These These are incredibly bright minds and that was the rabbit hole that opened up and just dragged me in. I couldn't get enough at that point. Because then not only was I getting proof for the clients that I was, that I was meeting with to say, no, there's this third party out here. There, are, there, are, there is actual evidence outside of, the, of my company that demonstrates that these non-monetary rewards are more effective, that money isn't the primary motivator. And it fueled my my personal curiosity to say, well, if this is the case, if we don't understand our own motivation when it comes to money, because I was still, and, and to this day, by the way, if you said, hey, Tim, which would you rather have? Would you rather have $100 or, um, or you know, uh, a fabulous dinner out with your wife? I would go, just give me the money. I'll get a, de- I'll get a better deal than you can get. You know, I, I've got all these biases that suggest to me that, of course, money is going to be more fungible and more uh, rewarding. And I thought, gosh, if we don't know our own motivations that well, if I don't know my own motivations that well, what is going on? And that, that curiosity, that why we do what we do question has plagued me since 2001, 2002. And I'm grateful yeah. because I think it's a fantastic thing to be curious about. Thank you. Uh, can you, can you going, going back to that, that Firestone study and just that general, kind of what the general, why is it that people might find the, the, the system prize rather than pure cash more rewarding or more valuable? That's, that's a really good question, Matt, because uh, it's, it's easy just to think that, well, you put a, a catalog with a bunch of silly stuff in front of someone. And in these days, the, that catalog was, it was literally a catalog. It wasn't Amazon. This was, uh, this was a printed book of awards, you know, of mm-hmm. rock pots and bicycles and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, household goods, electronics uh, to just, but it was all relatively speaking, it was all sort of hedonic, uh, not, not hedonistic, right, right. <laughs> hedonic and luxurious. And most of it were, were, were things that people would consider indulgences. Um, so when we compared that against people who just got cash, the underlying motivation is that, that I'm willing to work a little extra hard, a little extra when I feel like it's actually for me, when there's something in it for me and the reward, even though it might be a crock pot that gets used by everybody in the family, I could see myself using that and, and I, can, I can actually be rewarded by, by that immediate thing. If I, if I get the cash, there is some part of the unconscious that is informing us that says, how much of that's going to bills? How much is that going to go to pay for Junior's braces? Yeah. How much is that going to go to paying the water bill or the or you know the mortgage? And that actually is like we're not so interested in the utilitarian uh, aspects of that. So it, so the things that you know uh, again the, the yeah. unconscious is very very clever when it comes to informing us of what what we're willing to put extra effort into or not. 
Yeah, I was kind of curious about like on one end, is it that here's a little bit of an indulgence and it's for me. But if I bring home more money, the expectation from the family might be that that's just thrown into the general pot again to be distributed oh. at a similar percentage as my paycheck is already. Well, and why wouldn't it? <laughs> right. Because it is. It's, it actually shows up in my paycheck. Right. It's not like it's, it's not set up in a separate account saying this is your awards account. Um, you know, and I, I've had the chance to talk to a lot of recipients of these rewards over the years. And you know, one, one guy just said, you know, this is, this is what allows me to get new golf clubs that, you know, I'm going to collect points until I get enough points to get the new golf clubs. And then guess what? My wife who doesn't even like me golfing is not going to be able to object to me spending money on golf clubs because I'm not spending money on golf clubs. And and there's some magic in that, (laughs) but, but the actual, that that's a side effect. The actual motivation is, is, is how much it relates to us as individuals. Yeah. You know, for me too, on kind of related to some behavioral science and motivations that a lot of my communication work and research was related to kind of meaning motive and identity. How do people identify themselves? Where do they find meaning? And, but I do, I think, so this is this is a while back, uh, but something that also threw some fuel on the fire for me is my wife's uh, PhD research. One of one of the theoretical areas she was examining was self determination theory. So oh, yeah. kind of, you know, Ryan and DC and intrinsic and extrinsic, and th- those can all be charged terms. Like, really, what is intrinsic? What is yeah. extrinsic? But looking at motivation and so that I'm probably misremembering the story, but even. Was it DC that got in trouble at the University of Buffalo? He had a joint appointment between the business department and and the psychology department. And when he was showing that these reward systems didn't always align with kind of an industrial view of business, he was booted. If I'm remembering that correctly, actually, now yes, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, and yeah, and he he's caught flack for that. Yeah, uh, over the years. And then of course he was heralded by Dan Pink in right. In, in Dan Pink's book, Drive, where basically he just took all of uh, DC and Ryan's work and just said, these guys are gods, um, which I thought was as much as it was inappropriate to chastise these, these guys' work, it was also inappropriate, I think, to lionize them. Uh, I, I think that, um, but Dan Pink's a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, that, that challenge between kind of academic writing and, and writing for pop, you know, right? Like it's, it's hard. <laughs> you start to lose your audience if you try to tell a more nuanced story about. <laughs> it is. It's harder. But, but, you know, all of that, that uh, all of those motivational things are so complex because it's, it is uh, part of it is this intrinsic side, right. Or the, or at, at the very least um, self-identity. Yeah. And then there's also context, you know, what kind of culture are, are you in and the environment and even with uh, with those factors influencing us, pretty much across the entire globe, people are motivated more by non-monetary things than they are by monetary things. You know, the social side, the the cultural side, the just the the, the self-image and self-identity, self-schema things. Those are those all do impact, but very rarely do they impact as much as just the raw fact that that a non-monetary reward tends to be more more motivational it drives more action than the non-monetary or than monetary rewards excuse me 
Thanks. Uh, want to talk to you. So I, I feel like uh, one of the themes on behavioral grooves is Kurt, give you a little bit of guff for music and connecting things to music, <laughs> but I'm a huge music nerd. So I'm kind of like, yes. so if you don't mind, can you, what are some of the connections that you love between maybe music and behavioral science? And then maybe talk about how, how you, about your, your journey in music. So, but maybe if we'll just start with the uh, kind of the segue from behavioral science to music, that connection that you, you appreciate. So that your colleague might underappreciate. <laughs> and if he's listening, he does underappreciate. <laughs> Make sure that that's a fact. Uh, the, um, I guess when I think about music and behavioral science, music has been a part of psychological therapeutics for a long time, right? So there's something that's been established within the psychological community that it's really a good thing uh, to, to use music in, in healing on a, on a psychological and emotional level. And so that's, that's not new. And there's a lot of evidence both on, at a neuroscience level and a cognitive behavioral level uh, as well to support that, which is really cool. Um, my particular interest though, it has been in what is it that, you know, why does music engage me in a particular way? And Kurt is exactly the opposite. Kurt, my partner in behavioral grooves, he can listen to music while he's working. He can be typing away and be listening to headbanger music. And if there's even a hint of, uh, of a faint, you know, uh, speaker playing three rooms away, that will completely distract me. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I, we've asked a lot of our guests, do you listen to music while you work? And we, we found that there's a lot of people who say, yes, I can. That's not a problem. As long as it's, uh, it's pretty simple or there's, or there's no lyrics in it. Or uh, we even uh, spoke to one, uh, one woman who is a neuroscientist who is fluent in Italian, French, and English. And she said, as long as I'm listening to a song that isn't in one of those three languages, I'm good. Right. But then there's, there's also a large group of people who just say, no, I need complete silence. And uh, I'm helping, uh, Kurt and I are helping Melanie Brooks, who is a researcher at uh, Columbia University, just compile some anecdotal information. What is it that people have to say about this? And she and a, uh, and a grad student right now, a, a PhD student, are, are trying to figure out uh, why is it that some people can and why some people cannot listen to music while they're while they're working, and what are the what are the effects of it? And her early her early results are pretty interesting. That that most people can actually listen to a single piece of music played over and over again, and she thinks in part that works because it just becomes a dull blade, you know, after a while. It doesn't, for those people like me that hear music and want to just completely engage in it, that it doesn't, uh, that after a few repetitions, it's like, oh man, I'm, my ear is fatigued. And so uh, I tune out. So it, it will be interesting to see where, where she and her colleague go with that. But, but, but that's, that's sort of the segue in, in, in yeah. most for me. Yeah, I, because I, I was curious too about you know some of the some of the elements to like the the emotional impact that music can have, right? Like like change, changing music and uh, changing the score to a movie and how it can go from a drama to a comedy just by 
the music, right? But you haven't changed anything else or expectations that are at least Western popular music, right? That there's, there's going to be a tension and then something needs to resolve or is that chord change going to leave you hanging? And some of those things that you don't even really perceive until you're really critiquing the music, it's just something you feel. And so I'm just kind of curious and also just the well, way music makes us feel or the context that it sets for this, yeah, and, and musicians have known this for centuries, right? You know, we can listen to, um, to uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. We get that, or, excuse me, the fifth, you know, that yeah. da, da, uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And you hear that, da, 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 and you know, this is heavy-duty shit. Right. <laughs> You're not messing around. Yeah. This is a serious piece of music. And that is totally different from the way uh, the heroic, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, pastoral symphony starts, the sixth symphony starts with this really lovely melody and it, it builds, but it starts from almost nothing. It's like it, it breathes right out of the air. Um, and, and the fifth symphony is in a minor key and we know instantly that that's dark. And the sixth symphony is in a major key and we know that instantly that's brighter. Right. And we don't, no one has to tell us that. You don't need music theory to know that. You know? And I, I think that that's, pretty fantastic you know i can't get no satisfaction is written in e minor because it's a dark key it's you know i've got a gripe to, to <laughs> levy here right yeah. and and love the one you're with is written in in a major key because the major key is as a happy celebratory thing and stephen sills was basically saying love the one you're with man this is happy this is a good thing celebrate this so i think the songwriters for you know, five centuries have, have known this and putting it together with people, you know, like, like Stephen Levitt, who are, uh, who are, are, uh, you know, the, this is your brain kind of stuff. That's the the neuroscience of it is we're just beginning to really, I think, fully understand it. And I, I'm excited by all of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting when you were talking about music for me, it is like, I, I feel like I need something in the background, but uh, it's usually like a go-to for me is uh, Miles Davis, uh, wow. right? And or uh, like blue. I mean, you're yeah, you're- kind kind of blue because I'm familiar with it enough, and there's no lyrics. Yeah, but it's it keeps the energy going, and it also drowns out potential distractions for me. Like Which other, would, what would be a potential distraction? Um, for example, uh, in non-COVID times, my office is in a co-working space in downtown Iowa City. Uh, so even though it's my office, but just people going by or some noises or working, working from home now just with family members and you know, just double check, does, wait, is, is the dog getting into something, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, just some, or, or noises in the neighborhood that you know, it still seems out of context. So it's like it protects me from that. Uh, but it's usually that or like uh, some basic classical music like, uh, you know, like Dvorak or Vivaldi and just put that on in the background. But it's, it's, it's better than white noise. It makes me feel better than white noise, but it's basically serving as, as white noise. <laughs> well, I, re- I remember uh, I was uh, at a, in a class, a meditation class when I was 13 years old. Uh, okay, that's, we won't go into yeah. that. But there was a woman that said, I really love to meditate to some light classical music, you know, just, just to be able to hear some strings. And, and I thought, 
she is insane. That is like the worst thing I could do. <laughs> have any kind of music playing, like lights. Right. Wait, there's a melody. There's going to be some kind of dynamics. There's going to be highs and lows. There's going to be some sort of musical narrative that goes with this. No way could I listen to a piece of music while I'm trying to meditate. I want yeah. total silence. I just want lots of sounds. Plus, I don't know. I've, I've often got a, I've often got a playlist going on in my head. You know? Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is familiar for you, yeah. but you don't, I don't need a lot of music on the radio or, or playing at any time because I've always, I'm almost always got some music playing on in my head just anyway. So. So talk to me a little bit about your musical journey as a, a performer and a writer. Uh, how did that start? Gosh, uh, I think like every other 11 year old uh, starting to play the guitar, I was just like, I think that this is cool. And then at 13, I wrote my first song because I wanted to get the girl. And, you know, so I, I masked, brilliantly masked a song about, a, you know, this, this fantastically beautiful, you know, girl in my grade that when I played it, of course, everyone instantly knew that it was about, I wrote it about her, <laughs> but it was you know, pretty simple motivation. Yeah. And, uh, and I was fortunate to be able to dedicate a lot of time to practicing and and when I was when I was young when I got started so I got pretty good pretty fast and that got me into circles where I was hanging out with musicians who were better and better and I got asked to to sit in I mean they were these guys would were in their 20s and they would have to come to my house and pick me up because I didn't have a driver's license and uh, and they'd take me down and gig and thank god my parents just said, well, okay, Tim's just playing music. I guess that's okay. And I, I, I earned money from it, which allowed me to do things like go to a private school that I, that, you know, had a tuition with it and I could pay for that. And then that, uh, you know, that fueled me feeling like, well, I could go to a better university because I could play music and I earned enough money to cover my tuition bills, uh, playing music in college and played in cover bands. Uh, I, I went to college and I, I spent a year at the Conservatory of Music in Kansas City um, on classical guitar. But after that, spent um, I finished my degree, my bachelor's degree at Creighton University in Omaha. Okay. And it was, it was a right time at the right place and was in a band that was good enough uh, with a with a small enough amount of competition where we could make it really made a good living and uh, had a lot of fun. What doing. style were you playing then? Well, of course it was all cover music and okay. this early eighties. And so we were covering what would be good music to play in bars. We weren't fussy musically, which I think was a good thing. We were more concerned about how can we get people to come and drink in the bar because then the bar owners will be happy with this. Right, right, right. So there was a lot of Rolling Stones and Bruce Springsteen and, and we covered some older things like Monkees or Bob Seger and just anything that would be good, good, you know, dance music. Uh, or, and, and we happened to have a pretty handsome lead singer that was very flirtatious and he was really good at getting girls uh, into the bar. And wherever the girls would go to a college bar, the guys would follow. And so it was a, we weren't so, so crafty. We yeah. were mostly lucky, but, um, but it worked. And that, that just led me after graduating from college, it just went through 
a variety of different musical experiences of playing solo and playing with different groups and some church music for a while. And then in, um, in 1999 decided, you know, I've, I've got to actually get serious and record something. And so I started the, the, the first of seven records uh, in, in that year in 1999 and uh, collaborating with all kinds of people. Uh, around around Iowa, interesting enough, from Dubuque and uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota, and I've I've had the good fortune of playing with some really good, really really good players over the years. So, and you were you were in the Twin Cities when when the recording started? Is that yes, I was. I had okay. I had moved to uh, to the Twin Cities. I was living in St. Paul at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the themes I like to explore in the podcast, uh, creativity and collaboration, uh, do you find it easier or harder as a musician to, is it, is it easier for you to write by yourself, uh, be a solo act or be part of a band? That's a good question uh, for me right now, because I have uh, believed that up until a couple of years ago, that I really just wanted to hone my own writing skills and be able to play every song that I write on an acoustic guitar as a solo artist. And, uh, and so everything got crafted that way. And on all of those records, there were other musicians involved where I brought the songs to them and collaborated with them on what they should do. They, I didn't write the drum parts or the lead guitar part or the bass part, or I didn't write the backing vocals. But with the people who are talented to deliver those kinds of things, you know, I was able to collaborate with them and say, well, let's, let's move in this direction, maybe a little more of this, maybe a little less of that. And it was really fun to, it's always fun for me to collaborate because especially with people who are creative, because I never know what's going to happen. You know, there's uh, Jackson Brown once said about, uh, a record. He said, a record is such a great name because it is a record. It is the, the recording, the snapshot of what happens at the moment that that song is put on tape or, or in digital world. Right. And that's all it is. It's a snapshot. And if you come back and you do it again, it's going to be different. You'll get a different snapshot. And I think that that's fantastic. Uh, I love, I love having, looking back and having a series of snapshots that I can go back to. And some of them I'm really happy with. <laughs> some of them I'm, I'm like, well, we could have had a better snapshot. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Eyes were closed on that one. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, excuse me, but I just want to finish this idea of songwriting. So about two and a half years ago, I started collaborating with, um, I was feeling like I had some songs that I couldn't finish. Uh, and I thought, you know, there's this, the, the lead guitarist in my band, uh, Jonathan Benson, is a tremendously talented guitarist and songwriter. And I said to JJ, you know, would you help me on this? Would you see if you think you can finish this? And we pretty quickly, like seven songs, just burned through them and created new arrangements with in lightning speed. And was like, wow, that was actually pretty easy. And I felt like the, the core integrity of the song was completely maintained. At the same time, JJ's voice is, is clearly visible in lyric changes or or uh, arrangement. So just recently, a, a month or so ago, he and I started building from the ground up. We're, we're trying to use a, a David Byrne, Paul Simon model, where we're, we're not going to write any lyrics until we complete 10 songs worth of, of just the music. 
And uh, that's a whole new creative process for both of us because neither of us have ever written that way. I've always started with a lyrical idea that had some kind of uh, melodic component to it or a rhythmic component to it that was obvious like, oh, this is the, you know, this is a four, four song, this is a three, four song, or there's a vibe about this, that this is gonna be a really aggressive, you know, sharp edge tune, or no, this is a ballad and uh, that, that happened to me very easily in the very first iteration of, of lyric ideas that I would have. And so that, those lyric ideas were always the genesis of the entire tune. Now, JJ and I are saying, no, let's not write a single lyric until we really form what we think are interesting musical foundations for songs. What I, what I appreciate about that is also, I know sometimes from design and creativity is just what constraints can do. And so setting, setting up a structure like that sounds like it gets you out of, out of your personal comfort zone. So interesting to see what, what that might produce. I think it's, uh, it's exciting because it, 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 it is the, those constraints putting um, it's so interesting uh, that my wife and I were talking about this, that, that uh, by having very, very specific constraints, you actually create a sense of freedom to work within those constraints. And that's actually kind of liberating to now there's broader license to work within those rails that, uh, that, we, that neither JJ and I had explored before. And it's really, uh, it's so far, it's very rewarding. So when you, you were talking about being stuck and, and then, you know, connecting with, with JJ, because uh, it's in one, one of the themes I, or questions I ask sometimes are when you find yourself stuck, creatively, how do you get unstuck? And so it sounds like you had some of these ideas, but what do you think the breakthrough was in, in collaborating with your friend? We, uh, we were sitting around working on some older tunes uh, just a, a month or so ago. And I said, you know, I've got some interesting chords and I'm not sure exactly what to do with it. So, so this starts to bloom very organically and He's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's, that's actually a cool sound. And that he changed the tuning of his guitar and starts playing in a, you know, a, an alternative voicing to what I'm doing. And so now we've got two guitars that are sounding really cool and we really like the sound. And, I, and then he's like, well, okay, so what if we did this? And, then, and so we spent the next two hours on what if we did this and we hadn't written a lyric yet. And at the end of the night, I, I think... Uh, I think I'm going to say this correctly, but I might not, that I said to JJ, let's, let's actually just try and write the songs without any lyrics to start with. And he just grafted to it instantly. He just said, yes, of course. He said, let's, let's not even worry about lyrics. He said, lyrics, he said, dime a dozen. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't know if I agree with that, but, but, we'll, but we'll, we're going to start with this. And so both of us hewed to that, that concept right off the bat. So who are some of your, your biggest influences uh, from a music perspective? Well, I, you know, context matters, right? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a, in a world that was filled with, um, as, a, as a very young kid, the, the vinyl that was on my parents' stereo or you know, was yep. Harry Belafonte and the Weavers and the Tijuana Brass and Mitch Miller. And then the first live musical experiences I had when I was 
four, five, six were with the 4-H club because I grew up on a farm and we had, you know, farm animals and, and there were hoot nannies that we would do. And so my older brothers learned how to play very, very rudimentally, just not, not very well, but they had a guitar and a, and a, and a, a baritone ukulele that they, they played a little bit of. And, and so I just saw everybody singing. These nannies were like big sing-alongs. And that really engaged me, this idea of, wow, everybody can sing and there's a really good vibe. I get in my body, it feels yeah. really good. So it was easy to kind of graph to that, uh, which was Mitch Miller or, and Harry Belafonte and Pete Seeger. And by the time I get to high school, I'd already been through Motown and fell in love with the Supremes and the Temptations and Joe and Eddie and uh, Marvin Gaye. You know, that was now part of what I was listening to. But then I get influenced by Jose Feliciano, who is this fantastic guitarist. And so by the so I start playing guitar at eleven, and I first thing I want to learn songs that I can play, which are easy songs, which were songs like "Horse with No Name" by America, two chords. I could, I could learn and master that, but I wasn't satisfied with that, and found people like Stephen Stills from Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young writing songs that are really good pop songs with interesting lyrics and intricate guitar work and guitar work that really made a difference to the song. And so that was, that was really the beginning of leading me into, uh, for songwriters and players, uh, you know, Paul Simon and James Taylor, that, that were both finger style and clever in their use of chords and voicings and melodies and really they're great songs, you know, songwriters as well, which led me in and out of the police and sting. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because it's because it's great stuff. Springsteen, you know, another tremendous songwriter, um, uh, although not so gentle on on all the voicings. Right. You know, it and gosh, you know, I could I could go on and on. But that that sort of the that was the the beginning of that. Yeah. You know, just personally for me, it's uh, my my dad's vinyl collection. And he had quite an extensive collection. But if I were to. If if I had to put the th- the three <laughs> kind of from a mode perspective or the three most often occurring kind of genre types was uh, old country you know like like Johnny Cash uh, yeah so real real classic country uh, British invasion and uh, American uh, folk scene were kind of his three like so I mean we're we're talking probably it wasn't, wasn't that alternative for really what were on the top of the charts in the early sixties. Right. But, um, but for me as a kid, like sitting down and listening to uh, Folsom prison right, and, and sitting next to the record player and holding, holding a big album, right. You just, and having my headphones on and uh, yeah, those are so, but those are so different kind of stylistically that then I, it was, it's always fun for me to kind of like trace the genre of different music and then what makes it, like it still can be seen as blank, but it pushes the boundaries. And so then I, I don't know. So that well, was I, an early start. I also see the, the, the connection between all three because, re, uh, you know, so country music is really a, a, a strain of folk music. Yeah. So 
like we can trace all of that back to early folk, which of course had its roots uh, in English. Folk. Right. Kind of the, the Appalachian, like, yeah, the Appalachian uh, English, right? English and Irish. And song. Scottish and Irish. Yep. All, all that came from that. And then uh, when, when you, the, the British invasion, of course, did a wonderful job of combining both the, uh, both these, these folk melodies, uh, which of course you mentioned Jimmy Page earlier. Yeah. Uh, great historian you know half a dozen of his especially more acoustic tunes are based on on english folk melodies but they also combined it with the uh, the rootsy uh, african-american uh, experience that came out of slavery right and, right and those those revelation songs and and the, there's you know that uh that ends up becoming more present in american folk music and uh, didn't really get into old country in a meaningful way, but was still influential. So, uh, and, and that's a wonderful thing about, about music for me too, is to see how it's good to have boundaries. It's good to be able, I think it's a good thing to be able to listen to a piece of music and say, uh, you know, that's, that was probably written in the X, X time period by musicians in this country. You know, I think that that's, it's good to have that identity, but it's also super interesting to have the cross-pollination of ideas, uh, to, to think that, you know, um, it's it, to think that Chopin, you know, spent a lot of time in, uh, not just in France, you know, of, of the uh, Polish parents, but right. he spent a lot of time with Polish folk melodies because that's what his parents knew. And so there's cross-pollination of what he was hearing among the other French composers, but also from his parents when it came to these, these folk tunes and the mazurkas and the dance, the dance pieces. And you go, that's really cool. He created a whole new set of sounds that nobody had created. Right. Right. Because of that cross-pollination. So I, I'm totally fascinated by, and, and I, by the way, I love the three categories that, that yeah. were most influential for you. Yeah. And then it's funny because I remember an interview that I heard with uh, Jeff Tweedy one time, a long time ago, it might've been Terry Gross asking, asking him about uh, uncle Tupelo and uncle Tupelo having kind of this mix, you know, it was kind of cow punk before alternative country. Right. But they were loud. They were a really loud band to start with. And she was, she was just asking it like why they would do like old country tunes, but then also cover like Iggy and the Stooges and, his response, and I don't think he was trying to be jerky. It was like he was thrown back. He was like, I don't see why you wouldn't do those, right? Just, you know, because these are songs that they loved and, right? So certain elements from their childhood that they're bringing forward and... Why not? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's really cool. I remember uh, having a conversation with a producer uh, several years ago working on a record, and I had brought demos to the studio and we and uh, there was a, a particularly latin feeling tune and there was a couple of folky ballads and there was this pretty intense rock tune and i said gosh is this just is it just too weird to think that this these might actually all fit and he said of course they fit he said they're all coming from you and you're the you're the hub on this yeah. wheel with all these spokes going in different directions you're the hub on the wheel as the songwriter and I was just reminded that it is that simple. It really is that simple. So whoever you are as, as a music listener, you're the hub. Whatever kind of playlist you think you want to assemble, it doesn't matter because 
you're wherever those spokes go. So what? They all originate with you. I th- and I say power to the music listener. <laughs> Thank you. I want to switch gears a little bit. I, one of the things that you and Kurt on Behavioral Grooves have been doing in time of COVID, you've been putting out some great COVID-related content. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious from your perspective as you're kind of synthesizing the conversations you've had, have you found things that have either kind of accelerated or reinforced some of your beliefs in behavioral science or are there some context specific things with COVID where you found, huh, that's raising more questions about what I might have believed about a particular topic. I'm just kind of, cause it, to me, it just seems like it's an accelerant in a way. So is it, is it furthering more what we already believe? I'm oversimplifying or are there some things as well? COVID is so unique and it's so novel that it, it's actually questioning some of these contexts or applications of some behavioral science things I previously believed to be true or law-like. That's a really, really good question, Matt. I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if any of the fundamental beliefs or tenets or, or theories in behavioral science have been doubted in a meaningful way. At the same time, we did, we've done 30 episodes just yeah. on, on the COVID series. And in the authors and practitioners and researchers that we've talked to, uh, I th- there is a fair amount of natural human biases getting in, the, uh, in, in our way. Mm-hmm. Not, not so much at the scientific level, but these people that we've talked to have observed there are lots of challenges that we're going through. You know, there are some people who are like, oh my gosh, well, you know, we were four weeks into it. We, we were barely a month into it. And some people were saying, forget it. You know, we're never going back to work. This will never work. You know, this, no, you know, commercial real estate is dead. We're all going to be working out of our homes. It's like, it's easy to to jump to those conclusions. And it's natural for the human condition to do that. Uh, at the same time, I reflect on uh, Christina Bicchieri, who is at the, at the University of Pennsylvania. She wrote The Grammar of Society. It's a fantastic book on, on the sociological aspects of human behavior. And she said, you know, well, when we were talking to her about what, what might come out of this, like what kind of changes could there be on, on a cultural societal level? And she said, gosh, you know, it really depends on how long it lasts. She said, you know, uh, the, the Great Depression was years, you know, mm-hmm. eight years of huge unemployment numbers, uh, tremendously challenging economic uh, issues for, all, you know, almost a decade. We get to World War II, again, you know, five, six years of being in the war and rations and all kinds of challenges that, that went along with that. Those are really long-lasting, and, and those, of course, had long-lasting impacts on the generations that lived through them, right? And, yep. and today, if, if we have a, a vaccine by, by Christmas, we'll have gone through maybe nine months or so of hardship with this, and it might not be long enough to really change our long-term behaviors. Interesting, I, Yeah. Is, am, am I answering the, the, the yeah 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 and that's I, I think because I sometimes when I just see these like these these big events sometimes I'm curious just what it what it might mean to to the way we we look at or understand things and 
had an innovation project recently that was actually looking, this was in, uh, for lack of better terms, the trusted advisor space. So like real estate agents, insurance, salespeople, things like that. And, and we were trying to explore like what might this mean, right? Coming out of this about roles of trust. And that was some of the topics we were talking about is we were using other big events as comparison. And those are some of the things that we were discussing was, you know, is it, is it going to be long enough to leave a, a lasting mark or imprint, or is it going to be relatively speaking kind of ephemeral and we'll, we'll drift back. Uh, and we were just looking at one particular thing, but uh, outside of that space, I'm kind of curious, like thinking about my grandparents' generation came out of you know the depression and how frugal they were. Right. Mm-hmm. And then like, I was wondering about myself or my kids, if this goes on, like, will sporting events be crowded? Will dance halls be crowded? Right. Well, it, maybe not the financial piece or frugality, but might there be a different way that we think about social gatherings? But I do appreciate what you're saying. It, some of it is just how long is this going to impact or change our lives? Yeah, I, I've had that effect. And my, I, my guess is that you have too, where you're looking at a movie or, you, or, or I'm flipping through the sports channels and there's a football game and the crowds are just jammed into the stands. Yeah. Oh, whoa, you've got to stop that. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's not happening in real time. That, right, right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and so there is a, an immediate visceral reaction to it, but humans are infinitely adaptable. We could, we could go back to that status quo pretty damn easily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one of the other uh, themes on the podcast is advice. So uh, in stealing from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist. Sometimes when we give advice, he claims we're talking to our younger self. So I'm kind of curious about what advice you might have uh, for, for, uh, for folks or what's some of the best advice you received that maybe, because another thing, theme I've noticed is with some folks, there's advice. It's almost like they continue to unpack it the older they get. Like there was, you know, some wise person in their life that gave them a piece of advice and it, it seems to hold true. And I'm not sure either or is like what, what was good advice you received as a kid or what was advice you wish you would have received as a kid? I heard over and over again, the, the story that says, just do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I, you know, I, from the time I was in college, I heard that a thousand times. It was like, wow, that's, that's a huge burden for me to find a job where I get to do what I love. And I, I'm not by nature an entrepreneur. So I had a hard time with that. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time with that. And so they searched for, is this the job that I love? I found over my career that I fell in love with a lot of jobs. I had jobs that I loved, but it's more because I fell in love with them after I got them. And I think that that's a great way to go, that you don't have to have this, this uh, very specific fantasy around what, what you want and then go after that unabashedly. And you can, but there's such a small percentage of people who will get to achieve that in a meaningful way. The, the Steve Jobs of the world are one in a billion people. Right. I, I hate reading biographies of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Einstein, other than the pure fascination of what path did they take? There is nothing about their lives, really nothing about their lives that's going to impact me because they, they lived a course that could only be lived by them. I'm much more interested in uh, today 
at looking at what are most people doing with my kind of experience or my age or my interests. How are they taking advantage of happiness in their lives? Where is their subjective well-being coming from? I think that that's much more valuable than the the underlying assumption that do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That means that you can, A, identify exactly what will make you happy. And by the way, we don't know our own motivations that well. We just don't. So, so yeah, yeah. Define what I love means I have to know what my own motivations are and all the evidence that, that, I've, that I've seen both in my own research and in, in working with, uh, with other researchers and, and of course, an abundance of, of scientists tells us we don't know our own motivations very well. It's a, they're just big blind spots. So stop. I just want to encourage people, if you've heard that, that line of crap, just dismiss it. Just be willing to just fall in love with jobs as you go. Yeah. Find something interesting to do. And then if it continues to interest you, dive in, fall in love with it. You know, make it, don't make it just a romance, commit to it. <laughs> Thanks. You, when you're talking about our, our, our blind spots that we have as humans, it's one of the things that I find fascinating in many ways because, and, and maybe I'm oversimplifying, but thinking about some of the behavioral science elements but then also behavioral economics elements. Like there's like, we have trouble understanding ourselves at times, but then we can see patterns of what gets people to do things. Yes. And, exactly. and one of the things that I, I said on the branding side is that we're not rational creatures. We're, we're rationalizing creatures. Uh, we'll, we can, ex, we'll, we'll try to use data later to sound like we were very rational on why we made that decision. But, but even back to your golf club story, right? With the, to, uh, <laughs> here, I want golf clubs. <laughs> yeah. right? How can I get golf clubs without uh, getting yelled at by my wife? Right. Oh, I'll use this point system that, yep. that she doesn't have access to and doesn't take anything out of our family budget. There's nothing that comes out of the paycheck to make this happen. So everybody's good with it. Um, you know, simple things like that. I, I'm always fascinated by that. And I also just want to relieve people of some of the burden of feeling like you have to, you know, dance to your own song, you know, walk to the beat of your own drummers. Like, how do I know what that is? I might not know what that is. I might not, certainly not be able to process it consciously. There might be something unconscious that's, that's working on it. But to be able to articulate that consciously, uh, not, not to promote uh, you know, Jeremy Bentham's you know, hedonism thing of just do what you love, just do what you want, that do whatever feels good. That's not, that's not what yeah. I'm saying. But there is a certain amount of kind of follow what, what makes sense to you in the best decisions that you can make in the moment. Right. Because right. we're not always going to make the best decisions forever, but let's try to make the best decisions in the moment and enjoy them. Thank you. A uh, quick question for you that now, uh, post COVID, uh, what, what musical act are you looking most forward to catching live as soon as, as soon as venues are, are back in play? Wow. Wow. There's a uh, there's a young Brazilian guy named Nascimento that I'm a, a huge fan of. He's he of course he plays Spanish guitars, uh, as one might expect growing up in Brazil. But he's also got like this ten string uh, Spanish style guitar. So he's got he's got four extra bass strings 
that he uses that are tuned down really low. So it's like having a bass guitar and a six string guitar uh, on the same instrument. It's, and his melodies are tr just tremendous. And of course, he, growing up where he did in Brazil, he's deeply influenced by the bossa nova thing that yeah. happened late 50s and 60s so there's strains of that but he's also a world musician and so you hear a lot of modern jazz and folk music folk melodies in in his work and so i hope that he he has been in the united states he's been i don't know where he is right now but i know that he's he has toured uh within the united states and i hope that nascimento uh, comes back right on tim it was so good to have you on here. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, loved being able to do a little bit of a deep dive on music as well as behavioral science. You and me both, Matt. It's fantastic <laughs> that I get to be able to talk to music and to talk about music with a guy who gets music. <laughs> it's particularly joyful for me. And, and, and I am a big fan of, of your podcast as well. I think it's- Thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah thank you.